is we've been working through the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, we've said every week that it is a series of sermons that Moses gave to the people of Israel right on the brink of entering into the promised land. And the intent of delivering these particular sermons is to realign the hearts of Israel back to God. And so this is what we've been looking at every single week. And this is the point of the whole book, to realign and recalibrate our hearts back to God. And uh, tonight, I think it's going to be particularly relevant because we get to chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. And chapter 8 is all about pain. It's about suffering. And since I would imagine everybody has some experience with that. This is going to be somewhat relevant and applicable for people in here. But let me just say on the front end, before we look at this, I know this is a big passage and it can be, it, it, it looks intimidating just looking at the size of it, but we'll, we'll work our way through it quickly. And, um, but I know that, uh, or at least I just want to say on the front end, that God hates pain and God hates suffering. I mean, we, because we live in a broken and a fallen world, pain and suffering is a part of the world that we live in. But God does not sit on his hands. He actually enters in and does something about the pain. I mean, he uses pain in, in the suffering of his son Jesus to heal the whole world. So pain and suffering, God hates, but he, he's going to use it in a way to redeem and fix the pain and to eradicate it completely. So with that in mind, let me just draw our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I'm just going to read it and then we're going to jump in. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, and this is God's Word. It says this, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through that vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. And you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He 
who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump in and check it out. Father, thank you. Thank you for this uh, time tonight where we can pull away from uh, midterms and projects and things we got to do and and stop and be quiet and rest and hear what your word has for us today. I pray, Father, would you rule out distractions and things that may be swirling in our head and mind and allow us to focus. Holy Spirit, come and teach us what you'd have for us from Deuteronomy 8. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I, I have asthma, and I've always had it. Represent, apparently. Um, represent the asthmatics in the house. Um, and when I was about two, two or three, uh, I had a really severe asthma attack and I was rushed to the hospital. And I was in the hospital for about a week. And although I don't have, obviously, very strong memories, I have faint memories of what that week looked like. Because I remember a nurse routinely coming in, you know, every hour, every two hours or so, And this was a big nurse. And what she would do is she'd sit me up in my bed and she would literally um, pound my back to break up all of the mucus and all of whatever else was in my lungs. And so she would hit me hard. And I remember being in the room and being able to look across the, the, the room and my parents being over there and them just sitting there and watching this and not intervening and not protecting me. And if I would have had the, the vocabulary and the sense back then, I would have said, Hey, parents, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you sitting there and letting this nurse come in and beat the crap out of me every single week or every single day? Why would you sit there and allow pain into my life? And if my parents, if I had had, actually had this conversation, they would have looked at me and said, Matt, I know this doesn't make any sense. And this is confusing for you as a two-year-old to, to, watch, to watch your parents. I had no idea this was going to be a funny illustration, but to watch your parents... Uh, not do anything and protect you, but this is for your good, and you need to trust us in this. That's what the conversation would look like, and it would have been humorous, apparently. <laughs> but tonight, as we turn our attention to Deuteronomy 8, Moses is raising the same question here. God, why do you allow suffering into our lives? Why do you allow pain into our lives and just sit there and let it happen? You could do something, but you're across the room and you're not doing anything. Why? And we're going to find out that God's going to give us the same basic answer. This is for your good. You need to trust me. This is, this is my fatherly care of you. This is my fatherly discipline of you. And so we're going to talk about discipline tonight. Now, I know immediately, if you're anything like me, when you hear that word discipline, the first thing that pops in your mind is punishment. Like, you know, when you're in high school and you stay out past curfew, you get disciplined by getting grounded that weekend, right? And I think that the word discipline can mean that, but it's a much broader word. It actually means uh, teaching. It's, it's, it's an educational word. Just look at... Um, Verse 3, it says about halfway through that God disciplines his people to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is, this is teaching language. This is educational. This is instructional. And so I think when we look at this passage, we're going to see three different aspects about God's discipline emerge. We're going to see the, the how, the why, and the who. The how of, God, of God's discipline, the why of it. And the who behind it. So, first question. How does God discipline us? How how does he do this? And and what is actually going on here? So let me just read this. Let's look back at uh, verse 2. 
It, it reads this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. So, okay, God powerfully rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, right? And what does it say? He leads them into the desert. Did, did you notice the language there? God is actually leading. He is guiding. He is orchestrating them. It's not like they just kind of wandered into the desert on their own and God shows up and is like, all right, cool, we're here together. No, he is actually intentionally directing them into the desert, a barren, waterless, dry, rocky wasteland. I was watching uh, Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls. Um, uh, well, I always watch it. It's like my new favorite show. And uh, Bear Grylls is chilling in the desert. And he's showing you how you can get water in the desert. If you've seen this episode, it's great. He comes upon, uh, you know, it's, like, it's just like picture. I think he's in the Sahara or maybe in one of the, d- the deserts in the Middle East. And he comes upon a dead camel. And he says, here's how you can get water from this from, from this source. And he cuts open its abdomen cavity and starts pulling out uh, all the bodily organs. And so here's, you know, this big sack uh, is the stomach sack. And he cuts open the stomach sack. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, I already see faces getting squeezy. And uh, he reaches in and pulls out this half-digested f- uh, food that, in the stomach. And it looked like just like wet mud, grainy mud. And he pulls it out and he said, here's how you can get water from, you know, in the desert. And he lifts it up and he squeezes it, kind of wrings the water out. And he's you know, drinking the water from this thing as it's, as it's dripping in. It was awesome. <laughs> um, but here, here's the point. The desert sucks. There's no water there. There's no food there. It is a terrible, awful place. It is a barren wasteland. Nothing grows. Nothing's there. It is waterless. And they are there for 40 years. Let me move, it, let me move on. Verse 3, it says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger. God is not only leading them into the desert wasteland. He says God is actually the one causing you to hunger. He's the one that's actually causing hunger to come about in you. And then verse 15 makes it even more interesting. Verse 15, he led you through that vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. To make things worse, let's throw some venomous snakes and scorpions in the mix. No water, desert for 40 years, no food, lethal insects and reptiles. <laughs> throw them in the mix. Now before we have to ask this question of why, that why would God do this to his people, I want you to first see this. I want you to see that God does this. That God actually orchestrates and brings people into the desert. And so I want to just highlight three quick observations from from these few verses. And here's the first one. God allows pain in our lives. He does. He, He is orchestrating this whole experience for them. He doesn't step in and he doesn't stop it. He leads them into pain. He leads them into suffering. And now some of you automatically have a problem with that. Because philosophically, this is a big, huge, age-old question. If God is good, how could he allow pain and suffering? Doesn't the pain and the suffering contradict his goodness? This is a much bigger issue than we can really get into here tonight. But I just want you to see that the Bible's not shy about this. It doesn't shy away from flat out saying, God orchestrates and allows pain to happen. But here's the second observation. God also provides in the midst of the pain. I didn't read the second half of these verses, but let me just look at it. When it says that God leads them in the desert for 40 years, how does he care for them? Verse 4, it says, Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. And where is he taking them? 
He's taken them to the promised land, right? And it, we already we saw all that language about pomegranates and vine, you know, vines and all, all this good stuff that's waiting them, barley and water. He's leading them to a good place. You can trust him because he's leading you somewhere good. When it says in verse 3 that he caused them to hunger, what does it say right after that? But he fed them. He fed them with manna, with bread from heaven. He, he provided for them in the midst of the hunger. And then when it says when they were thirsty, what does it say in verse 15? God brought you water out of the rock. Every step of the way, every moment of their suffering, God is with them. And he is providing for them in ways that they didn't even know, in, in ways that may be under their radar. Even though God allows suffering in our lives, he draws in close. This is not the kind of suffering where he pulls away and says, all right, you are on your own. But he is actually drawing in and drawing in closer. This kind of reminded me of a story or uh, reminded me of a situation when when I was in Louisiana, and I really got to know this uh, family there. And I became good friends with, with, with the dad of, of this family. And he had, he had three younger uh, children, you know, like age six, five, and four or whatever. And uh, I spent, you know, countless hours over the house around the dinner table. And, of course, inevitably, one of these little five-year-old girls would do something wrong or selfish. And so daddy would, you know, take her in the back and, uh, and spank her. And, you know, he, he would... Uh, Spank her, and she would, of course, completely melt down and freak out and cry. How could you, you know, how could you do this? You know, she's freaking out, screaming at the top of her lungs. And it was, it, it was, so, impress, it, it was so impressive to me because right after my friend spanked his little girl and she's crying, he would hold her and, and let her cry on his shoulder, and he would reassure her and remind her, I love you, I really love you, and I forgive you. And this is the image, I think, of what God does here. He allows this pain. He allows this suffering. And we're crying, but, but he, he draws in. He draws in close. And he provides in the midst of all of this. But here's the third observation. God controls the elements of the universe. This may be too simplistic, but I want you to see that God is overseeing everything. He's overseeing their path. He's overseeing their food. He's overseeing their water. He's overseeing what their feet do. I mean, he's overseeing everything. He is in control of the whole situation. He's orchestrating every single detail of it. And when you put these three things together, this means that we really, uh, we really need not fear that God is, like the, that the universe has gone haywire. And that God is, is, is looking at the situation and wondering, oh, I wish I could help them, but I can't. Because what this does is this gives us, and I know that for some of you this may be even more frustrating to know that God is behind all these elements, but I hope that by the end of the night that you see that this is actually comforting. To know that he is, he is in control and that there is nothing outside of his jurisdiction. There's nothing outside of his plan. There's nothing outside of, of, of what he has planned for us. Which means that when hard things come into our life, we know it's, it's not something that is going crazy. But God's behind it in some way. But of course, here's the next question. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he allow pain into our lives? Why would he allow suffering into our lives? Because I know y'all's stories. I've sat down over coffee with y'all, and I know what's going on with y'all. And it's not pretty a lot of the time. So the question is, why? Why would God do this? I think uh, our passage, again, answers that. And I think it answers it in three different ways. Why God does this. Here's the first way. God allows suffering into their lives and our lives. God disciplines them and us in order to humble us. Let me just read it again, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to what? To humble you. Now, one of the reasons God does this is because he wants to humble us. Why? Why do we need humbling? 
Because pride and entitlement are deadly. Pride and entitlement are deadly things. And we need pride and entitlement stripped from our hearts. Because what does pride and entitlement do? It divides the human race. And it causes all kinds of friction in your relationships with everybody. Think about it. If you are basing your identity on what you are doing, your achievements, your political values, your your religious values, something about you, if this is what is at the core of what makes you you, of the core of what makes you good, of the core of what makes you superior to other people and different from other people, then you have to look down on the people that, don't, that, uh, that aren't basing their identity on the thing that you're basing it on. Let me give an example. If the thing that you center your entire identity upon is the fact that you are progressive or that you are liberal or that you have you know, your eye on more progressive values, uh, environmentalism or the care for the poor or whatever, then you automatically have to look down your nose at other people that have traditional, more conservative values. They're the, they're the problem with the world. They're the ones that are causing all, all, all the you know, screw-ups out there, and vice versa. If you're a more traditional, kind of conservative type, then those liberal, progressives, those are the people with the problem in the world. And that pride is dividing humanity. Well, think about it in just in, in, the, in the way that you relate to your schoolwork. If you say, I'm hardworking, I really care about my grades, and these lazy people over there don't care about them, you feel superior to them, and you drive a wedge between you and them, and vice versa. Or if you, if you really pride yourself on your own maturity, your own responsibility, then you have to look down on your, no, your, your nose at people that you deem immature and irresponsible. You see how pride begins to divide and wedge people and parties and the, hu- the human race as a whole. Pride is the thing that cuts us up. But when pain begins to enter in, and suffering begins to enter in, this begins to strip away that pride and that entitlement, and that begins to humble you, and begins to make you realize, I'm not superior to anybody. You get enough pain in your life, you get enough suffering in your life, and you begin to realize, these people over here are not that much different from me. I mean, just think about it. You've been around people who have gone through no hardships. Life was handed to them on a silver spoon, on a silver platter. And, and what are they typically like? Shallow? Uh, not wise, entitled, prideful. You can't really relate to them, and they can't really relate to most of the rest of the world. But think about people that have gone through a lot of hard junk. Those are the people that are deep, and those are the people that are wise, and that you want to listen to, and the people that you can relate to. You see how just pain and suffering as a whole, I mean, I think this is commonsensical. Pain and suffering makes you more grounded. It gives you more character as opposed to people who haven't really experienced it, typically. So that's the first thing. God does this to humble us. But here's the second reason. He does it to test and to see what, where our loyalties really lie. So let me just read the rest of verse 2. It says, uh, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in these desert these 40 years to humble you and what? To test you in order to know what was in your heart. God allows suffering to see what's really going on in our life. To really, rather, to see what's really going on in our heart. Where our true loyalties lie. I mean, think about this. Everybody in here, I'm sure, knows, or this may even be you, knows of somebody that became a Christian. They got really religious. They started taking their faith really seriously, and they were doing that for a period of time. And then something bad really happened. They got betrayed by their friends, or they lost a certain relationship, or something really important to them was lost, and they were, or, and they were devastated and hurt by it. And their reaction was, God, forget this. This is not what I signed up for. And they peace out on God and turn their back from him. And you know people like that, right? This may be even you here tonight. I don't know. 
But let's do a little thought experiment real quick. Let's say that you inherited like millions of dollars. You just came into a ton of money. Your grandparents were your, you know, there were some big oil tycoons and you didn't know it. And you come upon huge inheritance. Good day. And (laughs) you go on. Let's say you meet somebody, fall in love, great spouse, get married. Even better day. (laughs) Things are going well. And let's say as the marriage begins to unfold, y'all begin to get more and more arguments, more and more fights, and you don't really understand why. And things start to get rockier and rockier. And then one, one day your spouse says, you know what, forget this, I'm out, and screams. And before they shut the door and slam the door on their way out, they say, you know what, I never really loved you. I just want to get my hands on that inheritance. And when I realized that I couldn't, I don't want to be around you anymore. And slam the door on their way out. Now, how would that make you feel? Used? Like, I'm just an object? You don't, you don't love me for me? You just wanted my money? You feel betrayed? You realize that this is probably how God feels all the time? Because when we do this to God, we say, God, you've got this big treasure chest of blessing of a life of happiness and security and safety. And when something bad happens in my life and I realize that I can't get my hands on that, I'm out and I don't want you anymore. And you realize we don't want God for God. We just want God for his stuff, for the blessing. We want to get our hands on that treasure chest of blessing. And so when hardship comes into our life, it really does expose what's going on in your heart. It really does start to strip away this religious pretense and start to see, okay, do you really love God? Or do you just want his stuff? You want that blessing? So we have to ask ourselves the question, do you love God for God? Or do you just want his stuff? You just want the happiness and the security and the safety and the good life. And when you realize he's not going to give it to you right now, then you say forget it. And you slam the door on your way out, just like that person in the thought experiment. That's the question. Here's the third thing, the third reason for why God does this. He does it to teach them dependence. Let me read verse 3. It says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. Why? to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So in the desert, God withholds the bread, but then he feeds them. He, 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 he withholds something, and then he comes in and actually feeds them in order to teach them dependency, in order to teach them that it's not just bread that you're depending on, but it's your breath as well that you're depending on. Everything you have is dependent on me, and so he allows suffering to come in, and it does one of two things to our hearts. Suffering either makes our hearts more jaded and more closed off and we become more cynical or it makes us more tenderized and more gentle and more understanding and more relatable these are the two ways that this you know happens in our in our, in our hearts i mean just think about it your own stories you, you may have heard countless stories in ruf or your youth group or your church back home where people tell their stories of i was going through this really awful phase I, you know, I had all this awful junk happening. My, my, my parents were fighting. I was you know, addicted to a bunch of different stuff. I was in a real bad spot. And in that place, in that place of suffering and despair, I somehow found Jesus. And I grabbed a hold of him. And now once this sort of storm has begun to pass away from my life, I'm still hanging on to him. You know, they've become a Christian. But they became a Christian born out of this initial place of suffering, an initial place of pain. I mean, this is, this is my story. I, 
I've never really shared this. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail. But when I was in high school, I just kind of got fed up with the whole social rat race of everything. Just, and, it, and I withdrew from my friends. I withdrew from community. And I was depressed and lonely. And I really did think about suicide back then. Thinking, I just want to see people at my own funeral care for me and, and show up and cry. I wanted to experience that people would love me and pursue me. And in that place, I, I, I in God's providence, ended up at this church retreat and heard the gospel for the first time. And I heard that Jesus actually does pursue his people. And I, and, and I gave my life to Jesus. I, I put my faith in him. And, and it, you know, it revolutionized things. But it wasn't like the pain went away. But in the midst of that pain that God, I think, brought into my life, made me dependent on him and grab a hold of him and draw, and draw closer to him. And I think this is what happens in all of our lives. When the pain hits, we can grab hold of him. Or it makes us even more jaded and more cynical. But here's the question. How do we become the people that actually grab a hold of him in the midst of that and not be people that grow more and more jaded and more cynical? I mean, think of it like a um, tetherball thing. You know the pole, Napoleon Dynamite, hitting the ball around that's you know, connected to the pole. The, the ball is getting pounded, but... Because it is connected and centered to the pole, it, it, it's staying on the pole. And actually, the more that it gets pounded, the closer and closer it actually gets to the actual pole. As opposed to like a soccer ball. When the soccer ball gets kicked, the soccer ball gets pounded. It gets shooting in a different direction away from the, the place where it was kicked. What's the difference between these two things? Only one is tethered to the pole. So how can we be those people that the more that we get pounded with life, we actually draw closer and closer to God himself? Well, here's the last, here's the last question. We'll do this quickly. The answer is to look at the who behind God's discipline. Here's what I mean. This whole passage zeroes in and makes sure that we know the character of God. This makes sure that we know in our heart, in the deepest place of our soul, who is the one that is doing this and who is the one behind this whole thing, behind our whole stories. So let me read it. Verse 5. It says this. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. He says, know that this is a father-son or a father-daughter relationship. Know in your heart that this is the case. The Bible affirms over and over and over that God is your father. It's interesting, but in Deuteronomy chapter 1, the first chapter, or the, yeah, the first chapter of this book, it, they're recounting this painful desert experience. And it says in verse uh, 27 um, uh, that the people reacted this way. It is because the Lord hated us that he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Hardship comes, and they say, it is because God is against us, because he hates us, because he is punishing us that this is happening. And then what does Moses say in the very next verse? He says, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, and here it is, as a man carries his son. Here's the pattern. Hardship happens. We typically react, God, you hate us. You are against us. What is the deal? And the Bible over and over affirms, no, no, no. You have to realize God is your father. God is your father. So here's the question. How do we become people that when pain and hardship happens, we know that God is our Father and not that He hates us and He is out to get us? Well, here's the answer. Years after this happened, years and years and years after this happened in Deuteronomy 8, Jesus shows up in the same area of the Promised Land. And after He is baptized, what does God say? God says, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus experiences and knows that God is his father. He knows in his heart that God is his father. And what does his father do immediately after that? He sends him into the wilderness. Sends him directly into the desert to be tested by Satan three times. And after Satan tests him the first time, what does Jesus quote? Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, it it is not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Here's the point. Jesus passes his test. Jesus passes. He gets a perfect grade. Even though he was uh, abused in his life, even though he was homeless, even though his family abandoned him, even though his friends betrayed him, through every step of the way, he passed the test. He didn't complain. He didn't murmur. He didn't abandon God. He didn't throw up his middle finger back at God. He kept on believing that God was his father. And he hung on and clung on tighter to God. He passed the test. And so here's the question. Why is Jesus dying on the cross then? Because the cross was reserved for criminals. The cross was reserved for people who failed their tests. Why is Jesus doing it if he was innocent and if he was perfect? It's because Jesus is not dying for his failed tests. He is dying for ours. And this is the point. In God's astounding grace... He sends His beloved and only begotten Son to die in our place. He loses His sonship so that we can be brought in as sons and as daughters. What, is, what does Jesus call, father all, call God all throughout His life? It is Father, my Father, my Father, my Father. On the cross, the only time that He says this, what does He say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father forsakes the Son and He loses His sonship so that you and me can be brought in as sons and daughters. And this is the gospel, that Jesus passed the test and give us the credit for his experience. He gives us the credit for his perfect score, and he receives the blame of our failed tests. And when you take that into your heart, when you reach out and grab a hold of Jesus by faith, and you know the gospel, and you believe the gospel, and take it into your heart, then you know that when hardships happen, it is not because God is punishing you then you know that it's not because God hates you and God is out to get you. You know in your heart, as Deuteronomy 8.5 says, that he is your father. And you may not know why, in particular, this, this particular thing, this particular awful thing may be happening, but you know underneath all of the pain and underneath all of the junk that somewhere in there is because God is your father. And he is not out to get you, but in his way, he is doing this for your good. And he is loving you. And God hates pain enough And God hates suffering enough to enter into it himself so that by Jesus he can fully eradicate it. And so what is the ultimate promise of the Bible? One day, Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. Those that are his, those who have put their faith in Jesus, he says, one day, no more pain because of the cross and because of what he has started. Let me end with this. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, wraps this up in a image that I think is memorable and in a way that only he can do it. So I'm just going to read it and we'll end here. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and it doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. 
You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Let me pray. Father, we don't know why certain things happen in certain situations, but Father, I pray that when we look at suffering and when we experience suffering, sometimes horrific, awful suffering, that we would know that you are not out to get us, but you are our Father because you have punished your Son in our place and you have no condemnation for us now and nothing but love for us now. And I pray, Father, would that give us a deep and a real comfort underneath all the layers of hurt and underneath all the layers of walls that we have put up to keep people out. Would you enter in and be with us and comfort us and remind us of the grace of the gospel? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.